Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 300. Today is Sunday the 20th of October 2018 and this interview is with Lee Odden. Lee is an author and an influencer in his own right. He's also CEO and co-founder of Top Rank Marketing, an agency specializing in strategic internet marketing consultant services such as content marketing, social media and influencer marketing. In this conversation with Lee, We discuss how Lee has gone about building his customer-centric agency, a look under the hood of blogging, how to blog effectively, repurpose your content, and execute influencer marketing. It's the most stimulating discussion, and Lee brings lots of tips and insights. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So Lee Arden, great to have you on the show. We, are, we, we know many people in the same circle, as we've established, and where I think we have many of the same kinds of convictions, which is great to hear. So Lee, in yeah. your own words, tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, well, uh, it's great to be on the show, Minter. I, I appreciate it, and great to chat with you. Um, I am the CEO of an agency in uh, the middle of the United States uh, in Minnesota called Top Rank Marketing. Uh, We started as a PR firm and now we're a digital agency mostly focused on delivering content marketing solutions to B2B technology companies, healthcare companies. Um, We work with clients like Dell, LinkedIn, SAP, Oracle, uh, Slack, and so forth. I get to be the face of the company, speaking at uh, many, many events all over the world. Uh, author of a book, uh, blog quite a bit, and uh, yeah, I get to work with one of the most talented group of people that um, I've ever had the fortune of uh, having on a team. So yeah, that's what I get to do, and that's, I guess, who I am. You're, you've been on quite a journey. So in Minnesota, I'm thinking that you're familiar with cold weather and ice hockey. <laughs> You also have a football yes, team. cold weather. Yes, uh, this is the land of uh, ten thousand lakes. Actually, more like fifteen or twenty thousand lakes. And curiously, in the winter time, the lakes freeze over, and people drive their trucks and cars on them. They set up these little communities of what are called fish houses, ice houses, and drill holes in the ice and go fishing, as people say. But it's really not fishing for um, fish in the water. It's for fishing for bottle bass. In other words, it's a place to go escape home and drink. Um, <laughs> another form of bass, like bass, yeah. bass ale. So yeah, yeah, there you go. With a with a name like Top Rank uh, Marketing, the you're you are obviously sending high ambition, and maybe start with this notion of Top Rank, and and how do you articulate what Top Rank should be for a brand? It's sort of, you know, do you want to? Is it always about being number one in Google? Well, we started that way. Initially, as a PR firm, I came in as a consultant and I developed an offering called Top Rank. So it was offering search along with media relations. Eventually, Top Rank, the product, became the whole company. So it was almost an unintended uh, naming, but it reflected where the business was. And from a brand standpoint, we are looking to help our clients become leaders or, as we like to say, become the best answer for whatever their customers are looking for. And so there's still, even though we offer a spectrum of services, there is still a search component mm-hmm. uh, to what we do in terms of we are relying on our customers' customers 
actively looking for solutions. So what we deliver is the ability to be present in all the channels where those customers are looking and, like I said, become that best answer. So top rank is a reflection of that uh, still, not just limited to search. And and uh, so how much is SEO a part of what you have to do? Because I understand you're really focused on content. Right. But at some level, you're always going to need to find out what is the content. So which, you know, maybe it's the horse or the tail wagging component yeah. because if you if you know that this is a space that's not covered in Google then that can I articulate or instrumentalize the type of content you want to write sure it does and we do leverage uh, SEO data as a reflection of demand uh, amongst consumers of topics that line up with the content architecture or the content plan that we have in order to achieve a particular objective for a client so we'll leverage a variety of data sources and including search data to inform topics, uh, topic specificity, topic selection, um, when creating um, editorial plans for for our clients and programs. And then, obviously, once those those content assets are implemented, uh, we do perform some level of optimization because we do want to attract organic search sure. uh, traffic. And then we also look at performance metrics for continued optimization of marketing performance and uh, uh, some of that taps into SEO. So you mentioned this idea of answering the questions and it, I, I've always thought that uh, the Google element and, and, I, and of course it's not just about Google but I, I re-coined SEO strategic executive opportunity because in the end of the day you need to be answering someone's problem. Right. And, and if you can answer Google's problem, because no one's ever going to look for someone who's good at everything. Right. So they're going to look for someone who's good for cleaning my pipes. or And, and knowing how to, that's going to be languaged, written, typed into the Google bar really right. can formulate your content. And how much of that comes from, comes from Google in, in, in the way you advise your clients? That disposition towards specificity is probably somewhat born out of our experience with search uh, and optimization for search visibility. And that has uh, translated over into content specificity because like you say, if you're trying to be all things, each of those ideas is competing with each other. And so when Google is a, as an answer engine, uh, is needs to deliver that best answer, it's not going to pick something that's trying to be all things to all people. So that specificity is uh, helpful from helping a brand be the standout solution for a very particular thing that a buyer is looking for. It also informs not only editorial plans, but informs the things we do in terms of advertising, uh, in creating continuity of message across channels. It even informs particularly the influencer recruitment that we do, uh, because we do quite a bit of co-creation with internal and external um, industry experts to add authenticity and actually even to scale content creation capabilities. But um, it, what makes someone influential is not only domain expertise, but the degree to which that topic resonates with their audience and the degree to which that uh, idea propagates amongst that audience. So all of this comes back to that specific idea that a brand wants to be the best answer for that also matters to the customer. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So um, you guys talk about being a customer-centric agency. And I, I wonder, I was just wondering how, or the biggest challenge you've had to overcome in order to establish yourselves as a customer-centric agency. What, is, what does exactly that look like? Well, I think 
Customer centricity is is uh, based on empathy, right? And of course, we need no more than intuition and personal experience to activate that empathy. It's got to be done through data and building out our capabilities to source, analyze, and and even extract insights from data was really our first step or first challenge um, beyond just looking web analytics. But the I'd say the more challenging aspect has been having to work with limited degrees of data availability right. from different companies because you have some companies who have you know really well researched customer segments uh, that 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 have even been built out into individual personas that we can write to and that sort of thing, and then you have other companies where they don't have anything at all, which of course is why they need a marketing agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to have a flexible architecture in terms of how we assess a current situation in terms of data availability and then how to get someone from zero to hero, um, whatever their starting point might be, has been a big challenge. How do do we do that in an efficient way with a a X number of staff on our team, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because while we do have very specific customer, I mean, in terms of agency uh, customers, uh, mostly tech and, and healthcare, um, they do come to us with a variety of situ- current situations in terms of data availability. So that's been a challenge. We're accomplishing or we're uh, solving for that through a, uh, a simplified model of customer empathy uh, through data. And so uh, particularly as it relates to the customer's relationship with information and their pursuit of solution. So the three things that we focus on are um, – how is it this this buyer for this particular brand? How are they discovering solution information? So obviously their search. What do they search on? What are their social conversations that they're having in forums? Looking for peer recommendations. Who influences them? What do they subscribe to? What kinds of advertising resonates with them? And you know what publications do they read? What are the influences around that particular buyer in terms of information discovery? The second area is in terms of consumption. Um, so what are their preferences for content consumption with, relative to topics, uh, content format? You know, they like long form, short form, video, infographics, white papers, case studies, examples, demos, um, and also devices. You know, what are they consuming this content on? Are they consuming it in tablets and mobile, IoT, uh, you know, smartphone or whatever? I mean, so smartwatch or the good old fashioned laptop. Uh, and the third thing is action. Uh, what are the triggers that motivate them to take action? Whether you know it's to share, to to consume, to subscribe, to download, trial, demo, or even make an inquiry or transact, or ultimately maybe to advocate. Um, so our expression of empathy for an audience fits in those three buckets. Now, obviously, there are other things that we have to pay attention to, but by making sure content is accountable to its ability to attract, to engage and convert is how, you know, I, I think is a way in which we are trying to operationalize hmm. our ability to be empathetic and be more customer centric in the way we do our marketing. Well, that's a fascinating topic, Lee, and I, I might get back online, offline with you on that because I'm about to finish my book on artificial empathy and, uh, and <laughs> okay. just how to go. So we'll, we'll swing back on that. I, I am uh, so you with with these three ideas: discovery, consumption, and action. Presumably, you're always setting up metrics against them as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so discovery. Yeah, obviously, um, there are KPIs uh, relative to 
how someone is found. So with search, we're looking for keyword rankings uh, from an SEO perspective. We're looking for uh, social conversations uh, through social listening tools, that sort of thing. Um, we're also looking for other referral sources, whether it's uh, links from other website and earned media uh, in publications or guest posts and that sort of thing, um, word of mouth referrals from influencers or peers. So those are some of the metrics there. Uh, from a consumption standpoint, we're talking about customer experience types of metrics, you know, the degree to which content is being consumed or what are the experience metrics there, time on site, path through site, that sort of thing, uh, shares. Uh, on an action, uh, it's really uh, anything that's form oriented. Um, any, any data collected through forms is where we tend to focus from an action standpoint. Not a metric. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, so um, you are also uh, your own self. You've been blogging for a long time. As you say, you're the spokesperson, the front person for Top Rank for so long. And, uh, and blogging has changed over the years. I've noticed it myself. I've been blogging for about 10 years as well. And, and the type of traffic, there's sort of one, one day spikes and it's been seen for me, maybe because I'm not good and I haven't hired you, uh, that it, my traffic uh, seems to be slowing down. There's still engagement, but the number of comments is, you know, just fell off the, fell off the roof as far as I'm concerned. So for you, what's, what's your perspective, Lee, on how blogging's evolved, what the things you've learned over these years? And if you, going forward, what do you think are the key things for people who are creating content and specifically blogging? Sure. Well, uh, you know, I've noticed the same thing about comments and really where the conversations are happening are on the social networks mm -hmm. as opposed to on the blogs themselves. And uh, although some blogs still do maintain quite a, you know, uh, uh, engagement level because their community happens to be on the blog, but in others like ours and maybe yours too, those communities are activating elsewhere on Twitter on LinkedIn, uh, on Facebook, uh, in particular. So I think realizing where those conversations are happening is, is pretty important because one, if, if we only looked at engagement on the blog, uh, we'd be pretty disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, uh, it'd be very disappointing if, if we thought that was the only place where things can happen, just like, you know, as a brand that's marketing, if they thought everything has to happen on the website, well, <laughs> life would be pretty dismal right now because it's happening all over the place. So um, I, I think uh, really having a, a holistic view or, um, you know, it's, it's not just about content creation and promotion and, and, you know, just making stuff. You have to be a, a digital citizen and understanding the whole breadth of where, something like blogging can have an impact. And sometimes you're not going to have a direct measurable response to something that you just posted. Um, and now I've been blogging for 14 years now, uh, and I added it up, 1.4 million words uh, over all those years. And I started doing most of the blogging myself, but then I enlisted help, which is one of the lessons I would share with people listening in is, Get help, and if you're uh, the solopreneur, well, that's fine. You can get guest posts. You can invite other people to participate. In fact, one of the things I've done very successfully is to leverage content to create relationships with people in the industry, um, even prospective customers. So uh, I do that through interviews or getting pull quotes for uh, roundups, or you know, as a journalist might do to add credibility to a piece. We get an outside voice 
add their insights into the piece and there you go. And I made that part of the process of how we do content, um, including external voices as well as internal voices. And that really helps you, interestingly, not ironically, interestingly produce more content because you have other people contributing uh, to those things. Mm. So, um, and I think um, one, one of the other, I guess, uh, big lessons is to paying attention to data uh, and how you measure effectiveness. So, you know, I'd rather, I, here's the thing, social proof is a very uh, crack-like addiction. Um, and so I see things like we have a, a post with 5,000 social shares, but only 1,000 views or visitors. What? <laughs> Where's the value? Um, so right. from an awareness standpoint, one might think, oh yeah, that was a very successful post. No, not really. Um, to our overall objective, I'd rather have a post that has a thousand shares and five thousand views uh, or visitors because those visitors came not from social, but they came from links or referrals or you know other direct sources. So mm. I think it's really important to pay attention to your success metrics and what is it you're trying to achieve. Likewise, uh, in terms of the comment scenario, oh, I have posts and our average number of comments is only two. Hmm. And yet I'm paying attention on the social web and I'm seeing the frequency with which the topics we're putting out there into the world are being talked about more and more and a significant level uh, out on the social web. They're just not happening on the blog itself. I think it's important to pay attention to um, data in, meaning, in a meaningful way as opposed to a superficial way, which, which is very tempting right. if you're strapped for time. For sure. If you're, or resources. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. What about um, repurposing? How do you, uh, you know, encourage somebody, and what's maybe your own strategy for once you've got a kernel, you know, a, let's say a, a a backbone piece of content, and then putting it out on Medium, LinkedIn, Twitter, and and Facebook sure. or Notes or whatever. What what is your approach to advising, you know, solopreneurs up to companies in terms of repurposing content? So. We could. It is a very common thing to take a very large. Uh, there, there are many different types of uh, repurposing. I'll share maybe three. So I'll kind of dig a little deeper on what you just said. So I may create a well, a power page. I, like this is the encyclopedic treatment to a very specific idea, and I want to give all the angles on a very specific idea and publish that as a post. Now I can repost that on Medium and LinkedIn, linking back my to my source, saying this originally appeared back da da da. So I can give a canonical. A pointer, if you, as it were, uh, to the source, so I don't screw with my rankings and, uh, and and that. So that's a very straightforward thing to do. I think that's a good idea. You know, you wait a little time before you do that repurposing. I play around with variations in title when I do that. Um, for a while, for example, I was writing for CMO.com uh, for the the EMEA uh, audience. For some reason, they well, asked I, me I know them rather well, of course. <laughs> and uh, and so I published. So what I did is. Um, I created a for, sort of template, a structure, uh, very simple, you know, problem solution, third-party experts, and conclusion, uh, practical, or, sorry, practical steps and conclusion. That's roughly the schema that I would follow in these articles. That, that modular sort of approach then allowed me to repost uh, that same article on my own blog, but instead of using the UK or European experts, I would find US experts to include instead because my audience is predominantly in North America. Um, so that's one type of repurposing. Another type is um, something that we do, uh, which I would call small to big. 
And so I have a gentleman who works for me, uh, Lane Ellis, who does daily curation across our social channels. So he's looking for very useful things out on the web, and then he shares them through our social channels, intermingles our own information uh, in there. And then um, he pulls that together, picks up best things, and publishes them uh, on what every Friday called a Friday News Post. We call it a Friday News Post. So it's basically a curation of uh, news items, some of which have been shared socially throughout the week on our various different social channels, and that creates a blog post. And then he takes the best out of those four or five blog posts for the month and pops the best into an email newsletter that goes out to our, our community, which is a monthly newsletter, right? So that is a very simple uh, stream. way to... It's like a stream. Yeah, yeah. But we get data about what news items actually resonate. And that's part of the criteria that helps them graduate to the elevated form of uh, repurposing. Um, a third example of repurposing that is relevant to the blog is this. Um, so I mentioned I like to use our blog or I like to use content to create relationships with people in the industry, um, just like you would with a podcast, you know, you interview people. So, um, you know, there are brands that we'd like to do business with, and I like to interview those people uh, that are in decision-making roles. And let's say you decide, okay, I want to be the best answer for this particular topic. I'm going to find 10 experts, and I'm going to do a long-form interview with each one of them, and I'm going to ask them 10 questions. Five of the questions are the same. Five of the questions are, are unique. Of the questions that are the same, I'm going to ask very – I'm going to use keywords – uh, in my questions, I'm going to ask questions that will evoke very practical, tactical answers or provocative answers like trends and predictions, that sort of thing. And so after I publish each of my 10 interviews over a space of time, I'm going to go back and I'm going to take all the answers to question number three. I'm going to publish a brand new blog post and maybe even an infographic and maybe even pop that up into SlideShare as a deck and maybe even use those individual elements as what I call ingredient content. And I'm going to flavor other content assets with their expertise over mm. time. Mm. And so that will give me fuel or, like I say, ingredients that I can use to flavor or actually create other content recipes for months after the fact. I love it. That is really clearly and very practical. That's, that's really cool. Um, the other thing that you guys do uh, is, apart from content, is also influencer management and marketing, as I understand it. And, um, and of course, influencers presumably are also part of helping distribute because distribution is, I mean, getting the word out. Once you've done all that hard work and getting it written is a, is a big part of that, I'm sure. You can qualify that. But the, the question I really wanted to ask you, and it goes to something that I remember from my L'Oreal days, where as these media are evolving so much, there's this concept of shit in, shit out. And if the brief, <laughs> which is your, let's say, shit in, um, including data, of course, but if the brief is, is poorly expressed, it's very hard as an agency to, to execute and, you know, to have claps on the back afterwards because, hey, you did a great job. So the brief element, I was wondering if you had a view on how it's evolved and what makes for a good brief these days, especially when you're looking at creating content or influencer marketing. So it's it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. So we've created a lot of demand and expertise for ourselves around the idea of not just working with influencers, but collab influencer collaboration. So we're very organic in our approach 
uh, and relationship driven in our approach to working with influencers as opposed to exclusively pay to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and also we're very B2B focused as to, opposed to consumer focused. So um, from a brief perspective, my what I can add to the conversation is a little more specific relative to B2B. Um, and we're, we're seeing, I'm seeing a lot more project oriented, campaign oriented requests come in uh, where people are tentative and they want to do a pilot. They want to do a proof of concept. Um, there's a particular technology brand that really led the, led the industry in 2007 and eight. They had a, um, a group of declared influencers that they would bring to the corporate offices and to events and things. And these were all bloggers at the time. And some of them, uh, you mentioned some of the names uh, when we were doing our prep of who we know in common. And uh, so funny enough, 10 years later, they're approaching it as if it's brand new and we have to do a pilot <laughs> to prove uh, that, that this is actually something that's worthwhile for them. Um, so it's very interesting to see the increase in practical, tactical um, proof of concept types of, um, you know, campaign briefs, I guess, is that we're, we're getting. Um, we're still doing a lot of ongoing sorts of work in this respect because a lot of these pilots do turn into data that justifies or substantiates why you know, an ongoing effort is far more effective from a relationship standpoint, because if we don't, if we just do campaigns, you know, we're going to end up having to pay to play. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's it's like a relationship, you know, if you want a one night stand, generally you have to pay for it kind of thing. And, and somehow, at least, <laughs> uh, and, and the idea of building a relationship is not something you can do with, with a, an end in mind. I mean, you can, you can write a, yeah. a prenuptial, I guess. But you know, yeah. you gotta you gotta be think of it as an organic process. But it, yet, so how would you maybe characterize this kind of tendency to to want to start to to trial to to pilot, and what is missing to to go whole hog and and go and let's believe right. in a long term relationship. So. People understand things in terms of what they already know. So a lot of brands view the world through advertising because that's where most of their budget goes. And they're viewing influencer engagement as an ad buy. And so this is particularly prevalent in B2C where they're simply looking at influencers as channels of distribution. Um, They are looking at creators at helping to create something really interesting, but they're really looking at only as a stepping stone for distribution and advocacy uh, or, or uh, well, yeah, advocacy and promotion. And so, again, in our case, we're working more organically. So relationships are particularly important because what will stop an influencer from going to work with a competition? The strength of the relationship. So I think what really fuels the fire in terms of the long-term investment and the long view is understanding the cumulative effect and momentum that can be created by identifying influencers that have mutual uh, shared values with the brand. Uh, what can we accomplish together for the greater good of our industry? And out of that common uh, interest and, and that mutual value creation, we can create something wonderful together, right? And everybody wins, which is another characteristic of how we approach um, our marketing. Mm. One of the things that I, I tend to look at is uh, what does the brand stand for? I, I, I go upstream and I'm rarely involved in the actual content that they're creating. But I, I think of the, the need for the brand's values, for example, which may be written on a wall, 
but de facto aren't exactly lived by the individuals. And so the right. challenge is having some kind of congruency and link between the values on the wall and the way it's lived specifically by the employees and then moving that out into your influencers and so on. Yeah. In today's world, how do you how do you see brands and maybe you have examples of brands that are standing for something that's strong and that strength is a proof of concept. In other words, that by the very act of standing for something specific, more stronger, hey, even political, that is a, a better angle than trying to, let's say, just please Google. Right, right. You know, I think um, I'm, this makes me think of SAP a little bit uh, because SAP is a client of ours that is undertaking a, a global purpose initiative. And it's not just SAP's own purpose, but it's enabling purpose for other organizations through their technology solutions. So everything from optimizing supply chain that affects uh, you know businesses and economies and, and entire nations or, or large communities uh, to empowerment with uh, uh, in terms of diversity and, and uh, women's empowerment. Um, and so they're putting those they're putting a stake in the ground as it were in terms of what is that what does their brand stand for relative to these, I think it's five or eight or nine different um, areas of focus that were um, identified by the United Nations uh, and through content and through campaigns and through initiatives that are uh, activated externally through influencers as well as internally with uh, their executives uh, communicating as part of these uh, campaigns. And that's been interesting because, you know, we have a little bit of an inside view uh, in, into that. Um, and I can see that they are generally doing this. They like they're, they're generally the executives we get to work with at SAP. Uh, I, I mean, those that we have had the fortune to work with, they're, they're literally like this is what they feel like. This is what they're doing. And it's the different not just SAP corporate, but SAP success factors, SAP Ariba and, you know, the different business units that they have um, is, is really been interesting. Um, and I don't think you see this as much with B2B as you do with consumer brands. Um, like we were talking about Nike or, or Adidas or um, uh, Chipotle, you know, and sustainable farming and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting. What you're mentioning is that they are facilitating purpose rather than necessarily driving their own specific purpose. Well, um, the, so I'm speaking to a particular when I mentioned the United Nations, uh, that's a specific campaign, um, I think, that complements those issues they've identified as part of their purpose as an overall brand. Mm -hmm. So that that's a particular initiative um, that is facilitating purpose relative to uh, specific areas that have been identified um, uh, by the United Nations. When you're working with these brands, therefore creating content, influencer marketing strategies, I'm, I, you know, I'm just, you know, maybe the fly on the wall, but I'm, I'm have to imagine that the conversation inevitably goes back to, the top line strategy and brand, what do you stand for? How often does that become the thing that you're transforming as opposed to the content you're actually spilling out at the end? I wish it happened more often mm -hmm. than it does. We do play more in the mid range of things, the more in the practical implementation of the strategies we've helped to develop as opposed to altering what the overall brand is standing for. Um, 
We have a lot more opportunity to do that with maybe some of our mid-market size clients. Where you develop um, a longer relationship and... Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And, and the people, to be honest, you know, the people who are the champions within large enterprises for what the brand stands for are very um, empowered individuals and not always... Uh, mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're very focused on executing on the plan that they created Um and, uh, and, 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 you know, the context in which we're brought in isn't necessarily for that purpose, mm-hmm. although we can surface data that are, you know, articulates the way conversations are happening and that can affect or provide a data a point for them to consider in, in an alteration. Mm-hmm. But we're not necessarily making overall uh, recommendations and like, hey, you know what, uh, this is the this is a, a variant uh, in direction and messaging and narrative that you should probably take because of da 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 da, mm-hmm. as opposed to optimizing performance of what we've already been uh, charged to do in right. the first place. I understand how that can be limiting, but um, it, it just struck me. You know, just you listen. I was listening to you about the United Nations uh, categories of charities or causes, if you will, and and I I always get nervous when I hear a number of, for example, values, but that I'll never be able to remember all of them. I think that the brain is only good to remember basically three. Mm. And so four, that fourth one, I can sometimes do when I rehearse it. Five, it's it's impossible. So right. I kind of believe that it's got to be something that trips off the tongue. Everybody all the time remembers all of them. And, yeah. and if that's... if So just from my own intuition and my experience within L'Oreal is that if you... If you if you have a large variety, the, the, the trick is and the, the element of strategy, which is all about choice and, and narrowing down, is getting it down to the core. And that yeah. very exercise is the one that helps you articulate who you are as opposed to trying to please everybody because, oh, we like that one too. And, you know, the CFO right. likes that one too. Right. No, I, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. And I'm a, I happen to uh, – one self-awareness uh, element for me is the threes. I love, I mean, you know, attract, engage, convert, discover, consume, action. You know, I mean, I'm always thinking of things in threes. It's uh, it has a melody to it. It has a logic to it. But there's a feeling, and I, I and so yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, there's there's something that in the mind, um, you know, that resonates and connects with the notion of you know a finite, a smaller number of ideas that you can wrap your arms around. And I think if you can find the universe, even if you do have a portfolio of causes and initiatives that are distinct, um, I think if you can find the universal truth amongst all of them to focus on that, I think that's something that speaks to the truth of what your brand really stands for that will resonate and propagate a lot more effectively than many, many different things. And that's what I call finding your North Star. So, Lee, great to have you on the show. I really enjoyed it. I think you're, the way you express yourself and the solutions you're providing uh, and the ideas you already provided were absolutely fundamental and really cool, and I, I really grabbed that. So anyone who wants to follow you or, of course, read your blog, uh, get in touch with you if they happen to be interested in some B2B content or influencer marketing in particular. Um, how, do, how do they do that? Well, you can certainly visit it. Visit us on our website at toprankmarketing.com. We also, as I mentioned, we publish a blog. That's at marketingblog.com. And you heard me right, marketingblog.com. 
the best domain purchase I've ever made. Beautiful. And uh, I'm very active on the Twitter. So at L-E-E-O-D-D-E-N is where you can find me on Twitter or Instagram or pretty much anywhere. All right, beautiful. Lee, thanks for coming on the show. Stay warm, stay well. Thank you, Minter. And uh, keep on rocking. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's Finger Paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades Colors on the canvas as we
Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.